0: Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Bream Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at eleven, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.breanshoreline.org. Uh, Second Kings, Chapter Two. Uh, this is not the passage that we're going to talk about today, but Pastor Jim asked me to, to bring this up. It's a uh, passage that's near and dear to his heart, and uh, and possibly Pastor Kevin might enjoy this one. It doesn't really affect me at all too much. But 2 uh, Kings chapter 2, verse 23. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, baldy, they said. Get out of here, baldy. He turned around, looked at them, <clears throat> and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went on to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. So uh, just next time you think of mocking Pastor Jim or Pastor Kevin, <laughs> be warned. No. Uh, no, it's actually interesting. I was, I, this is like what what is this story? like this just shows up, and then there's like no explanation. Um, I was doing a little bit of reading on this, and part of the, one at least one person suggested that the reason that this is s- such an insult here and such a problem is because Eli- elisha, if you remember from last week, elisha has just succeeded Elijah in his in his ministry and in his prophecy, and Elijah was a very hairy man, and so the assumption here is that Elisha is not. And the challenge here is, is not, hey, we're making fun of you that you're bald, but it's, it's the fact that uh, they're, they're challenging, is Elisha actually able to succeed Elijah in his prophecy? And so the, this is the challenge, and, and apparently he proves that, that God is with him by calling down bears, which is still, what's that about? But anyway, we're, gonna, we're actually going to be in Second Kings chapter 5 this, this morning, so I encourage you to flip a couple pages over to there as we begin, I want uh, in to, the, in the ancient world, and as we talk about this, this isn't actually that ancient anymore. I mean, it's still pretty, this is probably around 800 or so B.C. Uh, but in, in the ancient world, there's this concept of tribal gods. And different nations had their own gods. And when you would go to war with another nation, really the question is, whose god is stronger? Whose god is more powerful our God or your God, and so they would go to war, and and oftentimes they would bring uh, an idol or some sort of representation of their God into battle. Often leading them into battle, and and the question is, whoever whoever is victorious in that battle, their God is is the greater God, and so there's you see this even in the Old Testament. You see this with the people of Israel. Sometimes they would bring the Ark of the Covenant into into battle with them. There's a great story earlier in First Samuel where where the Israelites do this and they lose the battle. And and there's and the ark is actually captured and then the Philistines take the ark into their temple of their God and and in the morning they wake up and their God, the idols, have fallen over and they lift them back up and they put them back up and the next morning they come in, they've fallen over and they're broken. And this this idea of, of Israel's God is still stronger in even in this but this is, this is a question and, and oftentimes this idea of of the tribal gods was tied to the land so that you would go to a different country you would go to a different nation it's like who's the god here and oftentimes if you're not at war with someone you would offer sacrifice to that god because that's the god of this land and you go back and you'd offer sacrifices to your god in, in your country and so there's this there's this is just a common Common way of thinking, common way of understanding the way that they thought the world worked. So each each nation would have their god of fertility, and the god that they would worship to when they planted crops. Each nation would have their god uh, for different things. And and so, um, Second Kings chapter five, verse one. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. <clears throat> Let me show you a picture of Aram here. <clears throat> you can turn the lights down. So this is the green up here. This is Aram. Here's Israel here. Um, so it's a neighboring, a neighboring country, neighboring nation to, to Israel and, and Aram. And Israel were were kind of back and forth. They had they had stretches of peace. They had stretches where they're at war with one another. But they're these neighboring neighboring nations. And so there would have been a god in Aram, and there would have been uh, obviously Israel had their god. But notice right away where our our author here is challenging this idea of tribal gods, because because who has given name and victory? You can look at the. God, the Lord, right? So Israel's God is giving victory to the to the commander of the armies of Aram. So so right away, there's a challenge to who's who's really in control, who's really the one that's that's providing this. So so um, Aram Aram, the Arameans would have had uh, their God, their their main God was a uh, God named Ramon, which means thunderer, and and he would have been the, the God of Aram. And uh sometimes you hear Aram referred to as Syria. Um it's the same it's the same nation, and so in Chronicles when you see Syria, uh it's Aram. Syria is the Greek what the Greeks called the, the Arameans. <clears throat> but right away in verse one, this is this is being challenged, this idea is being challenged, that it's it's not Rahman who has given victory to Naaman, it's the Lord, it's the God of Israel who is giving victory to the commander of the Aramean army, which, which seems problematic if you're an Israelite, right? And these are your enemies, and all of a sudden your God is the one that's giving victory to to your, the commander of your enemy's armies. But this is this is where we begin. Verse one. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but. He had leprosy, and so there's a problem here uh, he's he's a good soldier he's he's a great man Sadia, he's not just he's just not just any good soldier but he's a great man but he has leprosy and when <clears throat> excuse me when the bible says leprosy a lot of times we think what well, we think of as modern day leprosy it's not necessarily what they're referring to they use this word leprosy to refer to all sorts of uh just skin diseases of, of all sorts. Um, so it wouldn't necessarily be what we think of leprosy, which is um, named Hansen's disease. It's an unfortunate name. But, uh, but it would have just been probably some sort of skin disease that, that would have been problematic, would have made him unclean. Uh, this would have been problematic for him. So, uh, so now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel. And she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So here we have Naaman, a great man. And his wife has a servant who has been taken captive from Israel, probably in one of the victories that the Lord had given him. He's been taken captive and she's she's serving Naaman's wife. And and she says, and and we're told that she's a a young girl or a little girl. And this has meant a contrast between Naaman, who is a great man, and a little girl. And the little girl says, if only my master would see the prophet in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Let's show you the next picture here. Uh, So just zoom up of this one. So here's Damascus up here in the corner. This is the capital of Aram. This is most likely where... Where Naaman was, and all the way down here is Samaria. It's about 700 miles away, 700 or so. Um, I don't know if that's along the roads or as the crow flies, but it's it's a long ways. And they weren't driving. It probably would have taken probably would have taken a couple of weeks to get from Damascus to Samaria. <clears throat> and so he's told, if only my master would see this prophet in Israel, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went to his master, uh, the king of Aram. And told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Um, Now, We, we read this, this, what he brings with him. Ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, ten sets of clothing. Like this, this doesn't really mean any, does this mean anything to you? Anybody? He's like, oh, I know how much that's worth. Yeah, I don't think so. So I was, I was doing some research and, and I, I found somebody that, that gave kind of an estimate of what, what this could have bought, what sort of, what, how this would fit out with like a day's wages. And, and how that would compare to, to us today? Um, it's it's about a billion dollars worth of stuff, um, which is which is a lot. I mean, we, sometimes we think, and and I, I know sometimes you listen to the news and they're throwing around you know, so such and such companies sold for hundred billion dollars, or and sometimes we we think that oh billion dollars like it doesn't really seem like that much anymore. Let me show you a billion dollars in cash here. Those are hundreds. Um, that's a hundred ten million, ten million hundred dollar bills. Uh, it's a lot of money. And um, I, I, yeah, so here's maybe it's not to some of you, but it is to me. Uh, so this is this is this is how much he's taking—the equivalent of a billion dollars in in gold and silver and, and apparently some clothing as well. Probably would have been very expensive clothing. Um, and so here's what he brings. He's, he's got this entourage that he, that he brings with his chariots and his horses and, and all of this wealth that he's bringing for, for probably about two weeks' journey, 700 miles. He comes to the king of Israel with this letter from the king of Aram. With this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? What what does he think is happening here? Starting a war, right? Here's this guy, you know, he's commander of the army. He's, he's, He's picking a fight. He brings in all this wealth and says, okay, let's see what happens. And, and the king of Israel is thinking, well, if I, don't, if I can't do this, which I can't, uh, he's going to go back, he's going to march back to Damascus, and then he's going to come back with a real army, and, and we're going to go to war. And so the king of Israel is distressed. He tears his robes. Uh, but, but this is really fascinating. So far in, in our passage, who, who believes that Naaman is able to be cured? The little girl, who else? Naaman thinks it might be a possibility. Who else? The king of Aram. Who doesn't believe that he can be cured? King of Israel, right. So we have, we have at least some sense of faith from the king of Aram, from Naaman, from the little girl, and the king of Israel, who's supposed to be representing God, is, is distressed. He's upset. He doesn't think it's going to happen. <clears throat> when Elisha... The man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes. He said in this message, Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Uh, So so he, he he comes into the capital, he comes before the king with all of his wealth and all his entourage, and he says, I have this letter, can you cure me? And the king is upset elisha hears about this and he says sends a message hey don't worry about it send him to me he will know that there's a prophet in israel so naaman it, you get this picture that that okay naaman they like somehow turn around like it's this huge caravan right they got to get turn get everything around all the chariots and stuff and they they head over to elisha's house we don't know how far away elisha's house would have been from here but But here comes this entourage with all this wealth and and all this stuff. Elisha probably hears them coming, and he's inside. And they come to the house, and maybe they knock, maybe he just maybe not. But Elisha is over here in his house, and he hears hears Naaman at the door, and he sends a messenger. He doesn't he doesn't isn't bothered to get up. He's maybe he's having lunch or something. And he sends a messenger to the door. You know, here's this great man with all this wealth, billion dollars worth of cash, sitting out at his doorstep. And he sends a messenger and he says, uh, "Tell him to go, tell him to go and wash in the Jordan River seven times, and he'll be clean." Naaman's at the door. Really? Like. <laughs> That's it. Right. Like you're that's that's what I came all this way. I brought us, and you're not even going to come out like I'm a great man. And I have all of this wealth and and you're telling me to just go wash in, in the. What did he say? Naaman went away angry. And said, I thought that he would surely come out to me stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. David says, you send a messenger to me. You can't even be bothered to like get up and and come out and talk to me. I'm expecting you to come and do this. Great. Wave your hand, say, you know, call on the Lord and, and cure me. And you're telling me just go wash in the river. Like I've, that's like 40 miles away. You, what? And, and Naaman is furious. Um, he says, are not Abana and Far-far, Farpar, great names, um, biblical names, if you're looking for biblical names for your children. Far, <laughs> Farpar, great one. Uh, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel. Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off, in a rage Now there's a bunch of things happening in this in, in Naaman's anger here. Uh, the first is, is obviously I think the one that we stands out to us, us the most is pride right like here's this great man with all of this stuff and, and Elisha can't even be bothered to come to the door let alone do something a little bit more spectacular than just say turn around and, and march to, down to the Jordan and, and wash and so so there's some pride here. But there's also some desperation. Huh. There, this would have been a pretty common, a common thing to do when you had some sort of skin disease, would be to go wash in a river. In fact, there are, there are stories of different rivers that were, that were known for their healing qualities, that had certain minerals and, and things like that in them that, that were supposed to, to heal you. And so you, could, you would dip in them, and, and the idea would be that those minerals could could take care of some skin diseases and so naaman is like look i've already tried that like there there are great rivers in Damascus. i've done that and it hasn't worked and you're telling me to go wash in the dirty jordan river and you think that's like i i've come all this way like really that's it i'm gonna and and uh and so he he turns away and he's furious he he turns away and went off in a rage. And I think that speaks to, to, to us a little bit, doesn't it? Um, we, we love things that are big and flashy and showy. Uh, we gravitate towards those things. The, the, the celebrity that is more, um, outrageous. We, we, we follow after that. The, um, the big names, the whatever it is, the, the stuff that, that grabs our attention, the products, the, the commercials that, that are, are more clever, the, the movies that are, have a, a bigger budget, whatever it is, we're drawn towards the big. We're drawn towards the flashy. We're drawn towards the important. We're drawn towards those things in our relationships. So if you happen to, to know somebody who might be slightly famous, uh, maybe you drop their name a few more. Oh yeah, I was just hanging out. I I have a friend. Um, I'm not going to say who he is, but I have a friend who uh, happens to know a couple of the Sounders players. And every time I talk to him, it's like, oh yeah, I was hanging out with those. Like really? Every time? Come on. Um, but but we we we're drawn to this, right? We're we're drawn to the people who who are important and the people who um, who have stuff to offer us. Maybe make when we hang around them, maybe we feel a little bit better about ourselves because well, we're hanging out with you know this person. We're drawn to the important. We're drawn to the flashy because we want to be important. We want to be made to feel like we're important, like we matter. And so when people talk to us, when people interact with us, and they disrespect us, when they say things to us that 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 make us feel like they're just ignoring us or like they don't care about us, or we're not that important. We get angry, don't we? We may not think of ourselves, Oh, I'm a great man. Like You need to respect me. But when people just slight us and, and pass us off and brush us off, like, we, get, we get angry. We feel like we deserve a little bit more respect than that. And Naaman, Naaman is furious. But uh, Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? If the prophet had said, okay, here's what you need to do. You need to climb to the top of this mountain uh, and you need to offer a sacrifice of 200 cows and then come back down and, and then the Lord will heal you, uh, you would have done it. If he, had, if he had asked for some great, I mean, here you have all this wealth. If, if he's asking for something great from you, you, you would have done it. So how much more, then, when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of, man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean, like that of a young boy. Here's this great man. His flesh is now restored to that of a young boy. Uh, and, and it works. It works. And this is something that we see again and again. We've seen this already in, in the story of Elijah and Elisha. That God often shows up in the seemingly small, seemingly insignificant moments. And so that when Elijah is on top of the mountain and the, the storm and the fire and the winds come, God is not there. Where is God? In the still, small voice, in the silence. God shows up, and Naaman is expecting God to show up in some great, great work, great sacrifice that He offers. Some, some in His great wealth, He's expecting God to do something with that. But God shows up in the simple, seemingly insignificant, uh, dirty, messy moments, Um, and God, God is there, and He works. Naaman returns. Naaman, so so you get the sense that, that the whole entourage went down to the Jordan. Maybe it was because he was like, well, if this doesn't work, we'll just keep heading home. Don't wait here. Like, let's just all go. So you get the sense that, that all of it went with him. He goes down to the Jordan. Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him. So now Elisha can be bothered to, to get up and come to the door. Um. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. Naaman gets it. I mean, this, is, this is an incredible confession of this, this Aramean commander of an army. And he comes before Elisha and he says, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except for the God of Israel. That, 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 uh, show the map again. Maybe? No? Okay, that's right. Um, that, that it's not, it's not Israel's God and Moab's God and Edom's God and Aram's God, that there's only one God. I mean, this is, this is a radical confession. And it's not coming from the mouth of the king of Israel, right? It's coming from the mouth of Naaman, the commander of the Aramean army. He says, I, now, now I know. It's, it's, it's confession. He, he believes, he trusts. The prophet answered, Is sure, So now I know. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely. As the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. Even though Naaman urged him, he refused. And so you get this sense that there's this sort of back and forth between the two of them, right? It's like, uh, Naaman's here with all of his, all, you know, the whole thing is like, can I give you something? Like, let me pay, I have all this, let me give it to you. And Na- Elisha's like, that's okay, I don't need anything. He's like, well, How about, like, what about like half of it? You want, no, it's okay, I don't need anything. And I, I get this picture that it's, uh, no matter, it says something like Naaman urged him and he refused. So, you get, so I get the sense that they're like going back and forth and, and Elisha's like, no, I, I don't want it. I don't want it. Just... And so, so he, finally Naaman gives up. And, and his response is, is this. If you will not, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifice to any other god, but the Lord. And so it's like this back and forth. Take, come on, take something, like one of the shirts that I brought, like something. Will you, will you please take something? And Elisha says, No, 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 no. And Naaman says, Okay, fine. Well, if you won't take the money, can I at least take some dirt back? <laughs> this seems strange to anyone else except for me. <laughs> like, like, okay, well. Here's all my here's all my wealth, but you won't take that. Let me just take a couple shovelfuls of dirt back. Um, and 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 you get this sense that what what is this about? He says, I, I will only make sacrifices to the Lord. Now I will only I will only worship the Lord. And so what he wants to do is he either there, there's sort of some questions about what exactly he's he's hoping to do with this dirt. Uh, it's enough dirt for a, a couple of pairs of mules to carry back. So some people believe that what he's what he's wanting to do is to actually offer to to build an altar out of the dirt. Others think that he would build a he would put have like a pat maybe a patch in his yard or something where it was it was the dirt and he built an altar on top of that or somehow he would pray only on that dirt because because he still he gets it on one hand that there's only God but he needs to take a piece of the the earth from the place where Israel's God is from, so that he can he can have this earth to worship on, he can have this dirt to worship on. So he says, "Can I have enough dirt to take back that, that my mules can carry that I can take back and I can worship the Lord on that?" And Elisha says, "What? Like, don't you you just said like God? You you recognize that there's only one God? Why why do you need the dirt?" No, he doesn't say anything. But but Naaman continues. He says, But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Ramon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. And Elisha says, No way. Like you got to take a stand for something. Like, if you're really devoted to, this, to to God, like you you can't you can't participate in this idolatry any longer. Like, if if this is such a problem for you, stay here in Israel, and worship God here. You know, you you take a stand for something, or you'll fall for anything, right? Like this is what Elisha says to him. No. Elisha says. Go in peace. Go in peace. This, this clashes with, with everything that we expect from God, doesn't it? I mean, just, just chapters earlier, Elijah is on the mountain with the prophets of Baal and he says to the people of Israel, choose for yourselves this day who you will serve. If, if Yahweh is God, then serve him. If Baal is God, then serve him. And he has this confrontation. He says, you need to make a choice. And here's Naaman coming before Elisha and saying, look, I'm going to go back. And I need to go back. And it's going to get a little messy. Like, I, I'm going to I'm gonna have to do this. This is what my master expects with me. This is, this is part of my job. Uh, he's going to go into worship in the temple of Ramon. And he's going to expect me to be there with him so that I can can help him kneel down and he's going to expect me to kneel with him and and I'm going to have to do it. Will the Lord forgive me? And Elisha says, Go in peace. Go in peace. We don't expect this from God. We don't expect this to be the way that that God works. And I think... I, I've been I've been wrestling this week of, of what it, what does this mean What does this look like for us today What does this mean How how do we talk about this God who allows Naaman to go and essentially participate in this idolatry and He says Go in peace It's okay and I think I think God recognizes and meets us where we are at. That God doesn't expect us before we come to him to have it all figured out and have all the answers and to have all the messiness and all of the sort of ambiguities and gray areas of our lives cleared up before he can say, okay, now come to me. But he he meets us where we're at and he says, he says, "Okay, I understand that it's messy here, and I understand that this is this is not actually what I want from you, but go in peace." And that God is is a God who's, who the who the way He works is so far outside of any box that we might possibly construct for Him that when it seems at at all at all costs that He would say no, no 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 no. This, this you can't compromise on. We turn to him and we say, will you forgive me for this thing that I feel like I need to compromise on? And he says to us, go in peace. Go in peace. We have a God who, who meets us in the small, a God who meets us in the insignificant. We have a God who meets us when we are flat out disobeying, when we are flat out uh, running away from him, participating in things that are against him, that we say, "Lord, uh, forgive me," and he says, "Go in peace." And maybe you can think of of areas in in your life, uh, places that maybe places at work where you go into work and you you think i don't know how like this is my job i don't know how to participate in this this doesn't feel like this is what god wants for us and yet this is this is how i provide for my family or this is this is what i feel like i need to do and 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 you're wrestling with this sense of how do how do i do this and and maybe you need to hear the the word of the lord saying to you go in peace I think one of the things that makes Naaman different from Elisha or sorry, Naaman different from the story of of Elijah and the prophets of Baal is that Naaman's heart is one of seeking forgiveness. The Israelites were were in open rebellion to to God. And so Elijah says, You need you need to choose. And yet Naaman is is doing the best he can, the best he feels like he can, and God honors that. God sees that and He honors that, and He says, "Go in peace. Go in peace." So what I want—I mean, what I want for you to, to grab from this story, which is just a, a fascinating story—would you agree? It's it's pretty pretty amazing story. Uh, I hope that what you see in this story is a God who meets you where you are. A God who doesn't show up just in the big and the flashy, but a God who shows up in the day-to-day decisions of your life. In the small, seemingly insignificant decisions of your life, God is there. When When you speak to your spouse, when you speak to your children, when you speak to a neighbor, when you speak to a co-worker, when you're driving, it just feels like i do this every day but in those seemingly meaningless moments of your day god is there and he is present and oftentimes we want to do the big thing for god but but often god is asking for us to be faithful in the small things just do something small and then i want i hope that you hear a god who accepts you as you are who doesn't expect you to get it all figured out before he will say to you, okay, now, now come to me. But a God who meets you where you are and says to you, it's okay, it's okay, go in peace. We sang a song earlier uh, with a line that, that we've sung a bunch of times and it stuck, stood out to me for the first time um, And there's a line that says, your cross has spoken mercy over me. And I was struck by that this morning for some reason. Uh, Your cross has spoken mercy over me. And this is the reality of the gospel. That the cross of Jesus Christ speaks words of mercy over us. That we we come to him and we find forgiveness. And I hope that if you're here this morning... And and you have not received forgiveness for your sins. May you hear the Lord saying to you, go in peace. May you come to him and find mercy and forgiveness. All it takes is saying yes to God. Just a simple prayer that says, God, this is messy, but will you forgive me? And may you hear the word of the Lord saying, go in peace. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for your goodness. We're grateful for the fact that you are not just in the big. Because sometimes our lives can feel so small. And yet, we are so grateful that you are there in that smallness. That you are there with us, offering us forgiveness, offering us mercy, offering us hope. So we praise you, and we pray that uh, as we wrestle with the gray areas of our lives, uh, may we come seeking forgiveness for the ways that we have strayed, and may we hear that phrase again and again and again, that we go in peace. pray this in your name. On Thursday, and I just I got a note here that we so far we have received 55 pledge cards um, for a total of ninety two thousand six hundred and ninety dollars. So we are uh, approaching our goal of one hundred and twenty thousand dollars for our missions uh, pledges for the for the coming year. So I encourage you, if you haven't turned in a pledge card yet, do so. Um, it's a important for us to know how we can support our missionaries over the coming year. And this is a big part of, of what we do at our churches is support missionaries. Um, the song that, that we just sang came from Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And then in verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far away. And peace to those who are near. For through Him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. May you know Him who preached peace to you. And may you go in peace.